Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. This week's podcast is a little out of the ordinary. Last month, March of 2009, a reporter, Robert Polly, called me to talk about wealth, growth, and inflation. He asked a lot of interesting questions, fundamental questions. Where did the wealth go when our houses became less valuable? What causes growth? How do price changes affect our measures of wealth and our well-being? The conversation went on for quite some time, and I thought it would make a good episode of Econ Talk with Polly asking the questions while I try to give the answers. So with Robert Polly's permission, I'm sharing our conversation. I hope you enjoy it. As an econ uh, doofus, um, when I start hearing these terms that are especially um, widely used these days about the destruction of wealth, mm-hmm. uh, it immediately raises a question in my mind. Um, I kind of thought that the total wealth in a system you know, if, if wealth is based on things like uh, the labor force and on capital in the form of equipment and factories and infrastructure and knowledge, and then also, uh, you know, money, actual currency, and things like that, um, all those things have pretty much remained the same from those days before the recession started till now. And yet, supposedly, uh, aggregate wealth has shrunk. Now, does, how does that make sense? Isn't wealth conserved. Um, Let me ask you, first of all, does that question even make sense to someone who's been studying economics as long as you have? Uh, I think it's a good question. I think it confuses a lot of people, probably including some economists, and it's not an easy thing to talk about clearly. Uh, First, you're mixing up some stuff that we ought to keep separate. Uh, When you talk about wealth, our everyday use of the word uh, has a wider range of meaning than the economics jargon. So when you talk about our knowledge, that is a source of our well-being. It is a great asset, um, but we don't usually think about measuring it and uh, thinking about accumulating it and, and converting it into a dollar figure, which is usually what we mean by wealth when we're talking about sure, sure. the let's, jargon sense. Let's get that so a lot out of, of what equation. you're talking about are assets. Uh, we have factories. We have natural resources. We have knowledge. We have a phenomenal, usually, uh, system of rules and laws that help us make contracts and deal with each other and keep our promises, etc. And we have a great culture, by the way. And in some sense, that's, a, that's part of our wealth. But when people talk about our wealth being destroyed, what they're talking about, of course, is the dollar value of some of our assets that have been typically denominated in dollar terms, because that's how we keep score. Mm-hmm. And... Um, those have gone down a great deal. So the value of our house, the value of our retirement plan, et cetera. Those have gone down in dollar terms, in measured terms. And so in some sense, we are less wealthy than we were. And I think the source of the confusion particularly comes into play in the stock market. The stock market at its peak was almost twice as high as it is right now. Um, so are we half as wealthy in terms of our savings and our assets? And 
the reason that's confusing is that the stock market is a funny place, and we don't think about it much. We think about it when it's just sort of ticking along, going up a little bit here or there, going down a little bit here or there. We occasionally look at our balances and say, hey, we're doing okay, or we're up a little bit, or we might be down a little bit. When it changes in this amount, we're forced to think clearly about what it actually is. What the stock market is is an attempt to predict what the future will be. So if the future suddenly is perceived to be less rosy, it's going to mean that the value of the stocks that we have in our portfolio are going to go down. And as a result, that signal, that piece of information is is real. It's saying the future is less rosy than we thought it was. Now, are we poorer? Well, we are in the sense that we could have cashed out at that higher rate. But if that higher rate was artificially rosy, if we mm-hmm. overstated what we thought our future economic prosperity was going to be, it's really not so horrible that it readjusts downward. What's horrible is it readjusts this far downward. <laughs> this is what's been painful. It's one thing to say, well, we overstated how much our house was worth. <clears throat> For those of us who bought our house 5, 10, 15 years ago, we've had a, a wonderful run. It's come down some. We've given back some of the gains we thought we had if we haven't sold during that time period. And we say, well, I guess my house isn't as worth as much as I thought it was. If you bought a house last year, that's not your perspective. If you bought a house last year, you say, well, uh, I've lost money, and that would be a true statement. Um, and, of course, those of us who have seen our houses rise in value and then come down, we have lost paper profits, but we still might be far ahead of where we started. So it's a little different perspective. Right. Um, but I want to get back to this concept of, of aggregate or, or total value, which mm-hmm. is really how we measure wealth, in just a moment. But one amateur observation on the stock market, I often hear that it is uh, a guess on the part of investors as to the future of the economy. I've often thought of it differently as a guess on the part of investors as to the future behavior of other investors. Uh, what they're really betting on is whether other people will be getting out or into certain stocks. And Therefore, it's a little weirder and a little more complex than some bellwether of the economy, don't you think? Yeah, it is. But l- let me let me put a footnote to your your first statement. It's really a bellwether about the future of the corporate profits in, that are to come, mm-hmm. not the economy uh, itself. A lot of the economy is not traded on the stock market. A lot of our lives are not <laughs> traded on the stock market. It's really important to keep that in mind. Yes, we might have individual stakes in it as investors or retirees or future retirees, but the goal in life is not to make the stock market go up as much as possible. The goal in life is to enjoy life to its fullest. That includes sometimes making money in the stock market. It might include sometimes corporate America not doing very well because maybe that's the right policy. So I think you have to make that distinction. But your point, your second point is that there's a speculative element in the stock market. And let's let's go back again. I think it's easier to see it with housing. If I think housing is going to go up because housing is more valuable, then housing is a good investment. Right. But housing can be a good investment even if it's not more valuable. It's just right. everybody else thinks it's more valuable. Exactly right. And that's the animal spirits, uh, herd mentality. The problem with that, that's true in the very short run. It's true over, uh, it could be true tomorrow, it could be true for a week, it could be true even for a few years. It's very difficult for markets to reflect inaccurate information 
over longer periods. So, mm-hmm. for this, again, the housing market being a great example, or the stock market in 2000, 2001. You think about the stock market in 2000, 2001, there were a lot of stocks that were racing up, possibly because people thought other people would think they were going to race up and they were buying them. Right. The speculative motive. Yes. It's also possible they were racing up because no one was quite sure which stocks were going to be successful, which Internet companies would thrive. There was a lot of uncertainty. It was a new world. And so those are sort of the two ways of looking at a sudden price increase. It could be speculative bubble. It could be it's difficult. There's not complete information ever. And in new products, new times, technological change like the Internet, there's a lot of uncertainty, and so people are putting lots of bets down, not sure which ones are going to pay off. Okay, well then, um, it eventually comes down. It uh, doesn't last forever. You can't ride out that speculative bubble and keep it going. It eventually pops, if that's the ultimate reason. If it's just that people think it's going to keep up and other investors are going to invest. So in the short run, one way to to summarize that that observation here is just to say, well, at any one point in time, there can be over or under confidence in the actual uh, over pessimism or under over optimism about the actual value of, of the companies on the stock market because we're not sure if there's a speculative role going on. But over longer periods of time, those speculative roles tend to wash out and the stock market is a pretty accurate reflector of, of real underlying fundamentals. So, interestingly, even if the motive remains speculative on the part of, I mean, theoretically speaking, on the part of the majority of investors, still over time, speculation will resolve into a kind of genuine uh, bet on the actual financial condition of various companies in future. Because if, because if the market is purely speculative and there isn't the underlying fundamentals to support those prices, they can't stay high. Right. They do come down. Right. But in times like these, when the market is very skittish and each new piece of economic news sends people running for cover or, 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 or back into the market to invest, um, it, it does seem like the short-term motive is certainly speculative to me. Well, it's very, yeah, it's interesting because we're in the reverse time right now, right? We, we saw the the go-go uh, 2000 stock market, and we saw the go-go housing market from 1997 to 2006, and we're pretty sure that, that that housing market was falsely inflated by expectations that weren't to be realized, or perhaps policy uh, mistakes. It's a, it's a complicated, complicated picture. But right now, we're at the other end of it. We're in the world where the market seems artificially low. So, of course, because people, as you say, are skittish, my first answer to that is, well, great time to buy then, Robert. <laughs> Jump in. And you say, well, but I'm not sure it's really a good time. To buy. I'm scared. I'm skittish. And the answer is, yeah, you're right. Yeah, you are skittish. And I am too. And everybody is uncertain. There's a lot of anxiety and uncertainty about whether the current level of stock market prices is reflecting reality. That is, maybe the future profitability over the next few years of, of corporate America is actually pretty dismal. Uh, if financial markets are messed up for the next five years, if there's a bunch of policy initiatives and some of them fail, if we end up borrowing a few trillion dollars, all that's going to negatively, potentially negatively impact corporate profitability. And maybe the Dow is perfectly reflecting the reality of that negative world. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, a per- equally attractive description, which we cannot distinguish ex ante before the fact, is that 
people are just scared. They've overreacted. They're investing in treasuries because they're, they're nervous and scared of the stock market because they've lost so much money. And uh, now is a wonderful time to invest in the stock market because this is no way this really reflects the fundamental profitability of the corporate sector. I don't know what the answer is. Nobody does. That's uh, part of the challenge of being a grown-up in a capitalist economy is you can't uh, know what's going to happen in the future. And Mm -hmm. um, we'd like to. We'd like to be reassured or uh, guaranteed or not skittish, not be skittish, but that's the reality is we don't know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, let's return to the question of wealth. And and a uh, basic definition of wealth would be the, the valuation of our assets, uh, mm-hmm. correct? And, uh-huh. At market prices, usually. And that sounds good, except when we look closely at this notion of, of value, um, it itself is kind of a slippery and relative yep. concept. Mm-hmm. Um, and when we talk about total wealth in a system going up or down, we say total value has gone up or down. There again, um, this economics uh, weenie uh, has has a basic question. If all values go down, haven't re- couldn't relative values remain the same and therefore essentially everything is unchanged? Um, you know, value is simply relative. I mean, whether I say a dollar buys this or, or it takes $10 to buy this, it doesn't matter if um, the amount of cash changes accordingly, you know? Um, well, you're, you're onto something that's, that is important, and, but I think there's still an underlying uh, reality that, that you're missing. Let's start with what's important. Okay. Um, I am worried, as, as many economists are, that we're going to have inflation in the next few years. The Federal Reserve has injected uh, billions of dollars into the banking system. The banking system is currently sitting on it because they're skittish, as we talked about a minute ago, and fe- and fearful and cautious, and so they're not really doing much with that money except earning a very low rate of interest uh, from either the Fed uh, in the form of the reserves they hold or by buying treasuries with the, that money. But as people get more confident and as things return to some level of normalcy at some point in the future, they're going to take that money, they're going to lend it out, and all that money that the Fed has put into the banking system will come into the hands of investors and borrowers and consumers, and that will push up the level of prices. That's what inflation is. Mm -hmm. If that happens, the dollar value of our assets, many of our assets, will go up for no other reason than that the yardstick we use to measure, called the dollar, will have changed, and the dollar prices associated with the stuff we have will have gone up. Right. To to take a silly example, if we have 100% inflation, which would be extremely depressing and unlikely, but if we did, your used car, the car you're driving, might appreciate dramatically in dollar terms. Right. But you really wouldn't be wealthier, would you? Um, <laughs> that would not be true wealth. That would be paper wealth. And how would we distinguish between real wealth and paper wealth? Well, we would deflate. We would take our nominal dollar measure of wealth and try to put it in real terms. The way we do that in economics, we use some sort of in deflator, some sort of price index to say, well, today in 2009, say, I have this amount of dollar value of, of, of my assets, and let's go ahead five years to 2014, and I have a different dollar value. And let's say there's been enormous inflation between now and 2014. So the dollar value of my wealth would have increased dramatically. But what it could purchase could have gone down, even though it would be measured as much greater. If that is the case, I'm not wealthier. I'm actually poorer. Right. And that's why we always want to correct for inflation when we compare dollar values of wealth over time. 
or anything over time that has a dollar denomination, including, just to take a silly example, theater ticket sales. The most popular movie of all time is the Titanic, measured by box office sales. But I think when you correct for inflation, Gone with the Wind still beats it. Uh-huh. It's been out longer. Mm-hmm. So it's, you, know, you could argue that's not a fair comparison, but it's important and interesting to recognize that a dollar today is not the same as a dollar yesterday or a dollar tomorrow. Right. So if our paper wealth goes up over the next five years or whatever it does, uh, you want to make sure you correct for the fact that what it can buy depends on whether prices have changed in the meanwhile. And so you'd always want to do that. Uh, having said that, uh, if your real wealth goes up, if either the stock market or the value of your house or your car or your knowledge or all those other assets you have, if you did put them into dollar values and you decided they had gone up and gone up by more than prices had increased, then you'd say you're wealthier, and that would be true. Right. So, again, value has to do with, with relative measures. And uh, purchasing power uh, is, a, is a measure of you know, whatever um, liquid assets you have relative to the price of things. Correct. Um, That's very important. Now, if in this uh, scenario we've talked about where wealth is either increased or or, or destroyed, um, if everything went up proportionally or down uh-huh. proportionally, then things would remain the same. If prices, labor, all of that um, changed proportionally, then everything would remain in the same relative That's or in correct. the same relationship. But what you're saying is that in the wealth creation scenario – some things get more valuable relative to other things, the things we want to buy. In the wealth destruction scenario, our ability to buy goes down relative to the price of, of certain things. So I guess the real question is, why does the price of things not adjust accordingly? Uh, why, do, why do things get out of whack in such a way that we can buy less or we can buy more? Well, it's not out of whack. Um, what it's measuring is the real changes in our economic system and how they get translated into our lives. Mm-hmm. And if we look at it over a broader time period, I think we can see that. Let's let's take a uh, a huge time period, say today versus a century ago. And you hear this all the time. You know, people say, "Well, my salary's really high," and your great grandfather say, "Yeah, but when I was a boy, you could get a soda for a penny." <laughs> oh, wow! I guess that's a that's a mixed bag. Then I have a higher salary, but expensive Coke, uh, et cetera. And of course, I'll pick other different examples. So, when you're talking to your great grandfather, you want to you want to try to correct correctly for the average level of prices, or at least the level of prices of the stuff that you enjoy. And when you make a comparison over 100 years, you, you do have a problem, which is that the quality of things has changed also, which makes it very difficult. But let's put that to the side and just look at this, this fundamental issue you're raising about relative prices and relative value. Our incomes for the average person in America are dramatically higher today than they were 100 years ago. Mm-hmm. But so are the prices of stuff we want to buy. So you got to correct for that. When you do correct for that, you find it's not a wash. In fact, our standard of living, our command of goods and services, what an hour of the average worker's labor can buy is dramatically higher. And I think you're thinking, well, well, wait a minute. But if wages are higher, don't I want to put that into the price index? And the answer is you don't. That You said some things go up more than others. Right, that's correct. But some of the things that go up you don't put into the price index to do the, the deflating. When incomes, say, go up or wages go up, uh, by a factor of 10, and prices go up by a factor of 5, that's a real difference. That that means 
that you can buy a lot more stuff than you could have bought before, and it doesn't cancel out. It's not just like, well, some things are gone up a lot, and on average it washes out. It doesn't wash out. The stuff that's gone up, our assets in our earlier story, or the value of our labor in the case of this story, that's kept. you want to keep that separate from the value of prices. True, it is a price in the sense that it's something that a, a factory, a manager, a company, an employer has to pay for an hour of your time, but you don't want to weight that in with the higher price of the goods you enjoy. You want to keep them separate and compare the two. Okay, so now... It, let me let me jump in, Russ, because I think you you've um, described an interesting uh, scenario that might might hit at something fundamental. <laughs> you said if wages go up more than prices go up, and the question there is, hey, wages labor is is a cost. How did wages go up without prices uh, going up proportionally? And I want to say, yeah. sp- secret ingredient productivity. That's right. That's exactly right. And that's another way of saying our standard of living has gone up, or we're more prosperous. Because underlying that story, as you say, you have to ask, well, why did wages go up twice as fast as prices? Isn't, aren't wages an input into the production process, and how could that possibly be? How could wages double and prices only go up by 50%, say? And the answer is exactly what you said. It's productivity, and that's just another way of really saying our standard of living is higher. We're more productive. We get more stuff out of fewer raw material, less more raw material, be it labor, be it the literal natural resources we use in producing stuff, steel or paper or pencils or whatever it is. So that's exactly the key. We're more productive. Thanks to technology. Thanks to knowledge, technology, and also important uh, competition, uh-huh. which forces uh, the generators of technology, the creators, to share the fruits of their knowledge uh, more widely than they'd prefer. So if you, if you create a new product, you'd like to keep the profitability for that yourself. If you create a new machine, you'd like to keep the profits from that machine yourself. But generally, because you're not the only person working on that problem, you're forced through competition to charge a lower price than you'd like to charge. And similarly, the people who use the machines, who generate the productivity, would like to capture all that productivity in the form of profit. They can't. Competition among firms forces them to share it with consumers in the form of lower prices. It is not uh, fully appreciated or sufficiently appreciated, but compensation as a, as a proportion of total output is pretty rock-steady at about 70%. Hmm. You'll sometimes hear people say that hmm. wages have been falling as a proportion of total, of total output, mm-hmm. and to suggest that somehow corporations are getting more power relative to workers, but those statements always ignore benefits, the non-wage part of compensation. If you include all the costs of labor, if you include the total set of benefits that workers get, it's pretty much 70% for the last 60 years and hasn't changed um, much at all. And um, that's partly because corporations wish it were different. They wish they could increase their profitability and lower wages, lower compensation, but they're not able to because of competition among them for workers. Interesting. Well, you just described a, a scenario in which uh, total wealth has gone up uh, due to those three things you just mentioned, uh, or the one thing, productivity, which in turn is based on three things, technology, knowledge, and competition. Now, in the reverse scenario where, uh, where, where, where wealth um, declines, we're not saying, though, that that's a result of those three ingredients diminishing. Uh, Correct. Right? Right. We haven't forgotten how to do stuff. That's right. not why we're a little bit poorer today. Right. It's important to remember we're not a lot much poorer today than we were in um, 
there's a an extra confusion we might mention, which is a difference between wealth and income. Wealth is at a point in time, how much stuff do you have? It's like you pile all your stuff into a big pile, you put a dollar value on each thing in the pile, and then you add up the whole number, and your wealth is, is what's called a stock. It's a snapshot at a point in time with a dollar atta- number attached to it. Right. Your income is not a snapshot. Uh, it's a movie. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Your income is how much you earn per time period, whether it's a week, your weekly salary, your hourly salary, your, typically we think of our income often in annual terms. And so our annual incomes have barely gone down uh, as a nation, right? Our total productivity as a nation has barely gone down, which is the way it's measured in the data is GDP, gross domestic product, that is, which is a, a time-based measure. Gross domestic product is how much do we produce a year, and so the amount, our annual product production of stuff, of goods and services, even though we're in a recession, it's gone down a little, little bit. Our wealth has gone down a lot, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. our paper-denominated wealth. And those are two different things. And, of course, we understand that uh, – and, and so to come back to your question, what's generating our income is our productivity and our knowledge and our skills and our creativity – and that hasn't changed at all, and the dollar value of it's only gone down by a little bit. Mm-hmm. It could continue to fall, though, and the reason it might fall is because we're not using our resources at their fullest level. That's what unemployment is telling us, that there are people who have skills and have knowledge and who aren't being employed because they need either to move to a different sector of the economy or they can't find the job that they think is a good fit or the employer can't find them or there are many, many other reasons. But the bottom line is we're not at our full income-producing capacity as a nation. But our wealth, it's gone down a lot uh, because the stock market has plummeted. And that can easily come back, we know, as confidence and other things return, in which case you wouldn't want to argue we've suddenly gotten a lot smarter or more productive. It's just that the dollar values we place on stuff have been readjusted through that process we talked about earlier, the stock market or speculation or other things. Right. Now – I want to um, persist in in, in one um, one thought I had just a moment ago, which is that when we described a situation where where real wealth, real purchasing power goes up, mm-hmm. we described a way in which um, uh, wages and or the value of assets goes up relative to the cost of things. Mm-hmm. Um, when we talk about wealth going down. I guess we're talking about a situation when either wages, and in this case you just said uh, wages really haven't gone down that much. Asset values. Asset values have gone down in relation to the cost of things. That's correct. So what is it in that scenario, that that negative scenario, that has um, caused the values to go down relative to the cost? In other words, what has right. caused the, 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 the this disjuncture between values and cost? Why hasn't cost gone down proportionally? Because the source of the wealth loss is a reassessment of what the future will hold for the companies that we're talking about. And when that get that reassessment takes place, uh, the dollar values attached to our shares of stock go, or our mutual funds goes down. And as a result, the dollar paper value of our, of our wealth goes down. And the prices have changed hardly at all. 
right. the and, underlying and, of the things that we enjoy exactly. that we want to buy with that money. Exactly. We could buy with that money. And why haven't the prices changed? Why don't the prices go down to, to fit the, the lower demand? Because there's no, um, it's not what has, the prices of the stocks have gone down. What hasn't yeah. gone down are the prices of the goods and services we want to use when we decide to convert those pieces of paper into purchasing power by selling them. Exactly right. When they're not, when they're not sold, they're just sitting there as, as potential money. They were really high for a while. Now they're much lower. They may bounce back. We expect and hope they will. But what we can buy with them, the prices of those things don't change. And the reason they don't change, uh, or at least change much in a short period of time, is that the asset valuation, the dollar price tag on stocks or mutual funds, that things we talked about that generates the dollar value of wealth, isn't what affects the price of movie tickets, baseball games, 100% cotton shirts, trips to the doctor, haircuts, etc. <laughs> that is determined by how many pieces of paper, roughly, or how much dollar currency or credit is floating around the economy. And that's those two things are even though they seem related, they are totally different. Right, right. Um, if the Federal Reserve consistently prints more money or injects more money into the banking system at a rate faster than we produce stuff through productivity, we're going to have inflation, and the price of the goods and services we enjoy will rise. They still could rise less than the total amount of our income is going up. As long as we're productive, that will that will be the case. And as long as the inflation itself doesn't have a destructive component to our ability to produce stuff, then what we'll see is we'll see prices rising, incomes rising more rapidly as long as we're productive. And that's the way it is. What's happening right now is that the prices of one part of the economy, assets, stocks, remember, they're a funny kind of price. They're not the same thing as the price of shirts and other things. The price of shirts and other things are inherently driven by supply and demand for shirts and underlying all that, the amount of dollars floating around the whole economy. If suddenly people think the future is bleak and corporations are not going to be able to make much profit, the share price, another price, but a different kind of price than shirts, is going to fall. And that is not what we would use in our price index for evaluating what we can buy and sell. It's true we can buy and sell stocks, but usually what we're doing when we talk about a price index is talking about the stuff that we consume. Mm -hmm. You don't mm -hmm. consume a stock. You consume a shirt. Sure. You don't literally consume it in one gulp, but you do wear it and wear it out eventually. And those are the things that we put into the price index to try to figure out if we're catching up or falling behind when we want to put things in us, use the same yardstick or measuring stick. Right. Now, now I thought you were going to say something a little different, which is that um, in this uh, regime that we're in now, demand has fallen, even for those basic goods and services that you just described, even food, supposedly, according to some numbers I've been looking at. Mm -hmm. um, and therefore... Uh, and yet prices have remained um, stable, and so demand hasn't uh, a loss of demand hasn't caused prices to to drop uh, to 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 fit. And the reason I thought you might say there is that is psychology essentially that there's there's something in us that resists um, deeply discounting things that uh, resists uh, lowering our our wages or taking a pay cut or or charging less for something that we've charged a certain amount for 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 a long that time. That plays a role, but that's not yeah. the central. I don't think that's central. Uh -huh. let, let's try to talk about disentangling those those two effects: the psychological effect and the supply and demand effect. Yeah. It, it's true that, that the demand for cars, say, is way down. 
uh, and that's led to lower prices of cars, mm-hmm. uh, but not lower prices of everything. Right. Because people aren't lowering their demand for everything. People say, well, consumption's collapsed. Well, it's not like we're saving 90% of our money. We've just not buying quite as much as we did before, and it's very concentrated in high-ticket items, right? High-end electronics, automobiles, uh, etc. So the demand for cars is down. People are cautious and they're a little bit scared, so they're keeping the car that they might normally have have uh, traded in. So what happens out in the real world? What happens out in the real world is that there's a lot of inventory now on the part of car makers that they didn't expect to have. And now they have a choice. They can either try to discount those cars to move move them off the lot because they're costly. They have a lot of money tied up in them. And they do that. They have special promotions and other things. But it doesn't fall that far because if it fell a little more, people would start buying them again, which is okay, but they don't want to lose money on them, right? So there's a certain – it's not like it's going to go to zero when demand goes down. It's just going to fall some. Mm-hmm. Same with food. Yeah, there's a little bit of a decrease in demand for food. Certainly, my guess is high-end restaurants are struggling. Starbucks is probably struggling. People are you know, eating more at home. What does that do? Well, some restaurants will lower their prices, but if they lower them too much, they're going to go out of business. Yeah, they don't just it, it, you know they can lower them temporarily. They can have a Wednesday night special or a Monday night special, but after a while, they can't cover their costs, and that puts a natural uh, lower bound on how far prices can fall in the absence of other changes. So what you instead see the way that the market responds to say a decrease in uh, restaurant demand is, especially at the high end, is at first you see a a decrease in price, like you suggest, but after a while you see fewer restaurants. You see resources leaving the high-end restaurant business and flowing into other things, and the longer this recession lasts, the sadder those uh, out-of-business signs are going to be. Things that we've, luxuries and pleasurable treats and things we've enjoyed, innovation and, and say, in the entertainment world with the devices and gadgets we like, uh, they're going to be harder and harder for people to to sell if if our economy continues to slump because people will turn to the basics. So we'll see a Kindle 2, but we might not see a Kindle 3 if the economy is Hmm. stagnant for for anything close to Japan's, meaning five or ten years. I hope not. If it's a six-month slump, well, that'll be fine. But if it's a ten-year slump, you might not see Starbucks anymore, and those coffee lovers who become attached to their high-quality, high-priced Starbucks are going to find they won't be able to get those anymore. Okay, so so to back up to, to first principles here, uh, we're, we're inquiring really uh, why why the value of certain things remains higher relative to those things we need to purchase them, uh, and, and thus uh, our wealth declines. And the reason the value of certain things remains high, even when the system as a whole is slowing down, demand is going down, is that, well, demand for certain things remains high or supply becomes limited. Well, that and also the fact that you, you see the things, you notice the things where, where demand goes down. You don't notice things where demand goes up. Uh-huh. So, for example, high-end restaurant meals might get cheaper mm-hmm. if the demand falls for a while, but rice might get more expensive because people are turning to staple items uh-huh. as a way to save uh-huh. money. Uh-huh. Uh, you may have noticed... Uh, uh, Walmart's done okay so far in this recession. A little They've better, done yeah. surprisingly well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Neiman Marcus and, and Nordstrom's, I bet, aren't doing so well. So Nordstrom's has put more stuff on sale and eventually might have to close some stores in, in markets where it's 
profit those profitability the profitability of those stores is is closer to the margin to the edge but it could be that a lot of uh, other places are going to thrive so it could be for example high end meals out eating out high end meals will go down but maybe McDonald's will do very well or maybe it'll all substitute towards eating at home, in which case people will increase their demand for raw food. So it's the money supply which is driving the overall level of prices. Within any one market, supply and demand are doing their thing and creating relative price changes. But the reason that not everything gets cheaper when people are poorer is that if the Federal Reserve is still printing money, that's going to support the money price level of lots of goods. And you think even now when supposedly money is locked up, it's not being loaned uh, like it used to be, people aren't spending it as freely as they used to, you're saying the money supply has remained high or, or has gotten higher? Well, it's a tricky thing, right? It's a very complicated thing. The, the money supply is measured. There's all kinds of different measures of the money supply. Uh, the Federal Reserve has injected uh, billions of dollars into banks, but it hasn't ended up into your pocket or exactly. mine. Exactly. It's not really circulating out there, is it's it? It's not circulating. Yeah. The other thing that's happened is a complicated thing called velocity, which is the rate at which a dollar gets spent in mm-hmm. a given time period. So mm-hmm. you and I might hold, in good times, we're going to spend a little more freely, and a dollar is going to turn over more times during the year. Now we're more cautious we're more. We're going to hold maybe more money in our wallet than we normally would, or we did a year ago, and that will offset the expansionary effect of the Fed because we are spending less quickly per any time period. Right. So. But when things start to get healthier again, the dollars that the Fed has uh, essentially printed up are going to start circulating again more rapidly. And the Fed will face the challenge of a very swiftly rising price level. Right. Right. And, and there'll be a political challenge for the Fed as to what to do about that. Bring back uh, Paul Volcker. Uh, well, Paul Volcker <laughs> said we got to stop it. Ben Bernanke is going to have trouble having the political will to stop it if it's at the beginning of a, of a recovery we've been waiting for. Right, right. But 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 that's a future scenario. Uh, meanwhile, um, I just want to clarify that we're talking about why in, in the middle of a recession or in the midst of a recession. Why don't prices come down? Yeah. Why don't prices come down? You said it has to do with money supply, but but you admit that that money supply right now, in terms of real velocity, real turnover, is down. Um, well, no, again, it's it's a relative amount. There's plenty of money running around the economy, and it's actually increasing at a frighteningly fast clip that normally would cause a great deal of inflation, right. even in a recession. Right. But the reason it's not is that the banks are sitting on it. Uh-huh. Uh But. The recession itself doesn't drive prices down because we're still spending a great deal of money and we still have lots of people employed. You know, if God forbid we had 50% unemployment instead of 8.1, maybe we'd see real deflation uh, of a serious kind. You know, but the Fed is obsessed with avoiding deflation. Whether that's correct or not, I don't know, but it is it's an interesting question. As a result, they're, very, they're always in, in, injecting and pushing money into the economy if there's any we get close to it. In fact, in 2001, when the tech bubble broke and Alan Greenspan was very worried about deflation, that's one of the reasons he lowered the federal funds rate, the overnight interest rate that uh, banks charge each other to such a low level. And uh, that was perhaps part of the cause of what the problem we're in now. But he was worried about a different problem then. And as a result, we have a different problem now.
you have a podcast called Econ Talk, a very interesting podcast. And one of the things I really enjoy about it is that um, whatever your your actual orientation as an economist, uh, um, as a free market type economist, I guess, um, you're, you, there's a genuine spirit of sort of questioning and inquiry in, in, the, in the podcast. You're not out to just flog one point of view all the time. Um, and uh, there was one you had fairly recently. I think it was aired uh, last January, just a couple months ago. In which you really, you know, did a little soul searching about about the value and uh, and function of economics. Um, mm-hmm. You said, um, and I'm just going to paraphrase here. I, I think what's needed to get the economy going again is trust, a sense of optimism. I don't think economy has much to say about how to create trust or optimism, but in a general sense, I'm coming to believe that what economics is good for, besides preventing really dumb decisions and bad policies, is providing a language and a framework for thinking about complex matters in an organized and potentially rigorous way and to organize our thinking and dealing with these issues. But as a science, it's kind of coming up short for me these days. Mm-hmm. And we should mention that uh, before you, you summed up in that way, you, you, you had um, engaged in a long monologue about your observation that empirical studies, actual evidence from studies of economics, seem to seldom change the views of, of economists. They, yeah. they could either discount studies if they conflicted with their basic uh, economic ideology, or they could cite studies whenever they please to support any ideology. Mm-hmm. So how are you thinking about that these days? Well, I, I think that's an unfortunate truth that we as economists should come to grips with and not oversell what we understand and what we don't understand. Um, and we ought to be honest about what we know and what we don't know. So, for example, right now we're about to spend $787 billion financed by borrowing, and that strikes me as a ghastly error. But a lot of other economists, uh, some with Nobel Prizes, think it really ought to be bigger. Uh, Mm -hmm. So how do you reconcile those two views? Well, if you really push, and I have Nobel laureates on my side too, by the way, uh, saying it's a mistake. So when you see Nobel laureates who are supposed to be scientists, uh, it's called the Nobel Prize in Economic Science, which probably shouldn't be. Uh, maybe it should be called Economic Art or Economic Intuition or Economic Sort of Science. But when you see Nobel Prize winners on each side you s- disagreeing about something incredibly fundamental, you have to doubt that it's a scientific dispute and start to wonder whether it's really a philosophical dispute masquerading as a scientific dispute. Yes, both sides can quote some empirical evidence in support of their viewpoint uh, as much as you want, actually. But how come there isn't a consensus on this? How come we don't fully understand it? And I think we have to be honest and say this is something that we don't fully understand. The world's a very complex place. The ability of statistical techniques to tease out causation in such a world is a bit of a mirage. It is what Ed Lemer calls faith-based econometrics or faith-based statistics, not real science. Um, so when I'm confronted with that disagreement, I think what we're really disagreeing about is whether we want to be more like France or less like France. I'm a free market guy. I believe in limited government and more power for the individual. I want to be less like France. I think we're too much like France already. But a lot of people disagree. They think we're not enough like France. We ought to have the bigger safety net. We ought to have more government involvement in the labor market. We ought to have a bigger role for government deciding what our money and resources get spent on. That dispute's a philosophical dispute. There's not a lot of empirical evidence that's going to settle it. And pretending that there is, I think, is to engage in fake science. And um, I think we ought to be realistic about and humble about what we know and don't know. Is economics then always underlain by some ideological predisposition, um, such as your, your affection for, for free market uh, dynamics? 
Well, I think there's an ideological role among a lot of stuff that economists say. It's either lurking in the background and sometimes it's out in front. But I do think there are a lot of things that economists do agree on, and I think we should also, you know, the glass may be half empty, but it, or three-quarters empty, but it's not totally empty. I think economics is an incredibly powerful and useful tool for organizing your thinking, and there are a lot of things that economists would agree on. To take an example, our previous discussion about wealth and assets and inflation, economists across the political spectrum would give you presumably almost, if not the same answers to the questions you asked me. Those are not political questions, not ideological questions. They're thinking logic organizing your thinking about complex things. And economics is very good at that. It's very useful. There are policy issues that most economists agree on. Most economists think it's bad to have price supports for agricultural products. They think it's good to have free trade. There's close to unanimity on these things, although there's been some movement toward a more uh, government-oriented approach that's over the last few decades. But overall, most economists still come to a similar answer. And there's lots of agreement on the basic fundamentals that people respond to incentives, that what we forego when we make a decision that there are trade-offs is a crucial part of human life, uh, that the source of our standard of living is our productivity, for example, a topic we talked about earlier. So I think there's a lot of agreement on economics. I think the challenge is politicians and media expect economists to give answers the way engineers give answers about where uh, a bridge is going to have stress or where... Uh, a moonshot's going to land if we point it out of a certain angle uh, on a on the in the space program. That's not what we're good at, and uh, there are, are unfortunately plenty of economists who purport to tell you what interest rates will be 16 months from now. When I'm asked, I always say I don't know, and that anyone who tells you that they do is a liar. Uh, we don't know. Uh, it's a little bit. We're a little bit like meteorologists uh, when we're asked to forecast, but on grasping the complexity of the world and helping us people understand how the world's fundamentally working, I think we have a lot to contribute. Our predictive power into the future is inherently highly limited. And yet, that's what people want from us. That's what people expect from us. We should say, that's not my job. Uh-huh. Well, I guess the real, que- the real t- uh, litmus test as to whether economics is a science or not, at least the kind of economics we're talking about now, is whether um, uh, evidence could ever falsify a theory. That's exactly right. And have you ever had your theoretical beliefs, I'll, I'll use the word belief, um, uh, changed by, by evidence? No, I don't think so. And I think most economists, if they're honest, will, will, will agree, and the cur- at least about the kind of things we're talking about now, like the st- whether the stimulus is a good idea. Yeah, yeah. People who think the stimulus is a good idea say, World War II is what got us out of the Depression. And it was a stimulus. And- and it was that stimulus, that government spending. Those of us on the other side of us, oh, no, 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 no. There wasn't prosperity during World War II. There was only prosperity for military producers and the industries that produced bombs and guns. Sure, they were prosperous, but the rest of us weren't stimulated by that spending. That hurt us. That's my side's response. However, you wouldn't disagree that we came out of the Depression after World War II. We did. So, so the question is... So what happened? Oh, I have no problem generating a story. I'm a great storyteller, <laughs> as are all economists, about events that have already happened. <laughs> the secret's to tell the story in advance. Yes, we came out of the dep- out of the depression after 15 years, after ni- from 1929 to 1945 or 44, or between 30 and 45, depending on how you want to ca- count the start and the end. But that was because we finally got back to a world where the rules of the game were were secure, where government didn't intervene erratically and frenetically like it had during the New Deal, et cetera, et cetera. Now, having said all that, I think there are two crucial things to admit. One is we have a depression in the United States once a century. 
trying to explain a once-in-a-century event with a theory is a kind of foolish concept. There's a thousand things that have happened during those times, and it's easy ex post after the fact to generate a story that seems consistent with some of the data. Mm-hmm. So that's part of the problem we're talking about. Um, and the I think the second part is the complexity part. But the third part is, and this is very important for all the criticism I've made of economics here, we learned a lot about the Great Depression. We still don't agree on whether it's good for the government to intervene with stimulus. There's still a lot of debate among everyday citizens and among economists. But there are a lot of things we did during the Depression that were really stupid, and we shouldn't do them again. And most economists across the spectrum agree that they were mistakes. It was a mistake to pass the Smoot-Hawley tariff of 1930 that put up barriers to imports. At the time, it seemed like a good idea. Almost everyone agrees it helped make the Depression worse. At the time, the Federal Reserve in 1932 contracted the money supply and let it continue to contract and didn't respond. Most economists across the spectrum think that was a bad idea. In the 30s, we tried to cartelize big unions and big labor. We gave them more power through regulation. It helped those unions and those corporations. It didn't help the economy as a whole. Most economists would agree with that. So again, the glass is half full. We understand a lot more about the world around us maybe than we did before, but let's not exaggerate what we understand. Mm -hmm. This is a pretty unique situation that we're in. I hate to say pretty unique. It's unique (laughs) or it's not. It's a unique situation. We had a housing bubble burst in the United States of an unusual magnitude followed by a financial collapse. That's not what happened in 1932, 33, and 29. So all of a sudden, we're in a new situation. We don't have a lot of historical precedents to rely on. We don't have a lot of models that we've tested. And so to expect economics to be able to scientifically capture the current world and predict how to get out of it is it's just inherently a fool's game. And, but that doesn't stop people from playing it. Mm-hmm. And that's where I think the honesty needs to come in. Not that economics is worthless. It's not worthless. It's very valuable, as we can see in helping us think about the logic of these complex interactions in, any, in, an, economy, in an economy or in a market. But don't expect more from it than it can achieve. And, and of course, uh, economics invariably or, or, or often runs up against psychology, where it's really at a loss. Um, you know, you guys are not neither, – neither was Freud, let's be fair. Uh, you know, you guys don't totally have a, a handle on the human psyche. Right, and that's exactly what we were talking about before, that I think the fundamental underlying part of this mess is psychological, and economics has virtually nothing to say about what creates investor confidence. It will come back. I'm pretty confident about that. <laughs> when and why, I don't really understand, mm-hmm. and I don't think any economist does. Mm-hmm. And as you say, most psychologists don't either, so that's it's right. not, nothing really to be ashamed of. <laughs> not at all. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.